Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I'm here with my co-host, John Kiriakou. Hello. we got a couple hours of going against the grain and a bunch of stories we've been watching and anticipating. Uh, of course, we're going to talk about the meeting between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin mm-hmm. in Uzbekistan today and uh, what, what has come out of that. And also, I think, you know, what we should read into the Chinese leader making his first uh, visit out of the country in a couple of years right. to Central Asia. I think that's a very big deal, actually. Yeah. And I understand people are saying, well, the, the, the summit was being held in Uzbekistan, but sure. I mean, he could have gone to any other country in the world uh, over the last several months, and he chose to go to mm-hmm. Uzbekistan. I think that's a very powerful statement. We are going to talk about the last-minute deal that appears to have been reached between rail companies and the unions representing their many workers. It looks like, uh, I mean, Joe Biden was able to announce that they had come to a tentative agreement, which is now being sent to the union membership to vote on. But it looks like they've averted a crisis. And it looks like, I mean, yeah, sure does. It it looks like the unions have gotten uh, at least some of the concessions that they wanted in terms of uh, paid sick leave and unpaid sick leave Mm -hmm. and just the ability to take it without being penalized. Um, So, you know, it is possible that we have some good news on on this situation Uh, for everybody, really. I mean, as much as, you know, we would have, I support workers doing what they need to, to get the working conditions that they deserve, but it's not as though people would have been unaffected Mm -hmm. by, by a strike. Yep. I agree completely. The good news and also seems to be helping uh, the Biden administration's. I, I would expect this will help their political fortunes, right? Bi- Biden's. Yeah. Biden's approval has been on an upswing. It has and I been. do think in this case, it, it does appear to be something that at least some members of the administration handled adeptly. Pete Buttigieg pretty notably absent, absent. from any conversation about this. And of course, it was yes. a labor dispute, right? Um, but it's in the transport sector. It's in the transport sector, and he apparently has been completely cut out of things. Marty Walsh, who's the labor secretary, Mm -hmm. has been the point man in this whole thing. And it's Marty Walsh who appeared with the president this morning to announce that they had this tentative agreement. Yeah, you Pete Buttigieg Buttigieg has been nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found, Mm -hmm. really. And even when you had reports yesterday, you know, the White House is putting together emergency plans for how to deal with the strike and how to use it. I mean, that's transport. That's 100 percent in the transport wheelhouse. How are we going to get this over highways or ships instead of railway? So, yeah, you wonder if I mean, who knows what's going on? But I think his his absence is notable. It's notable. Yeah. Agreed. We are also going to talk about the weird expansion of this migrant busing stunt. Yeah, this is really offensive. Getting into it. And what Florida seems to have done is not taken migrants from Florida, but paid for a plane to take uh, migrants from San Antonio to Martha's Vineyard. And also to outside of Kamala, dropping some off outside of Kamala Harris's. I actually didn't look to confirm that this morning, yeah. but that were early reports that a bus full of migrants uh, was sent to the Naval Observatory. Right. And just dropped off there. Tell me I something. I need to actually look how, into that, to be fair. I was looking at the Martha's Vineyard one and then. Well, how is this not kidnapping? Well, they agree. I mean, here's the thing. Everything about this aspect of the stunt, and we will talk to it later. 
everything about this iteration of that practice seems to be far dodgier than the first go round. Oh, yeah. From Arizona and Texas, there have not been the, the migrants have been asked if they would like to get on a bus and go to Washington, D.C. or to New York. I don't think that there are any. Re- I mean, there has maybe been like a little bit of confusion, but especially early on, people were saying, yeah, it's cool. I, I wanted to come here anyway. My family is in New York. So I took the opportunity to get on the bus, yeah. not saying like this is a good, you know, that I think this is, you know, Greg Abbott right. uh, doing something out of the kindness of his heart. Definitely um, not. This, at least according to early reports, seems a lot shadier. Mm-hmm. It seems like people were unclear where where they were going. There were early reports that the woman who was behind this, uh, I forget her name, she's some Florida functionary, uh, appeared to be sort of re- recruiting people to get on the flight. And so every aspect of this has appeared dodgier than the first time around, right? Unbelievable. Um, and, you know, this is going to come back to bite these guys because there's going to be a Republican in the White House eventually at some point. And you know the Democrats are going to start doing exactly the same thing to the Republicans. This is very short-sighted, it's very political, it's very nasty, and I think that it's abusive. The median home price on Martha's Vineyard, uh, according to a story that I looked at, is is a million dollars, right? And if that figure isn't exactly accurate, Martha's Vineyard is a playground for the extremely wealthy. There's no affordable housing there. It's a little island where people go to vacation if you have a lot of money. uh, Maybe you can have, have a property there. So honestly... Screw Martha's Vineyard, right? I and I have friends in New England who've been up there and like it's sure. so pretty, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, but so I don't have any problem with attempting to force the people who craft our policies and uh, and and pull the levers in, in, of our government, whether overtly or from behind the mm-hmm. scenes, uh to manage the system they've created, right? Which is one where I, I fully believe this country has enough resources to go around that we can humanely welcome people uh, who want to enter because the situations where they live are intolerable or for any other reason. There is absolutely enough. But the way the system has been structured is it that there, there's unlimited wealth at the top and you do have uh, municipalities with very limited budgets and very limited resources and social safety nets that can only access a fraction of the incredible wealth that this country produces, right? And to some degree, it is the people in Martha's Vineyard who have created this. Yeah. So I disagree with sure. this as a political... I think uh, Texas and, and Arizona are stunting. Florida is stunting even more. Uh, but, you know, at the at the extremely small scale level, however, you know, I think that people in Martha's Vineyard maybe should have to, uh, you know, look, look at what their policies have, have created. Right. And it is not, you know, the, uh, the, the horror of immigration, right. but the fact that we've set up a situation where you do have, uh, the poorest people fighting for scant resources. True. Which is unnecessary. But then what's to stop the Democrats from putting everybody on planes and sending them to Palm beach? And sending them to Miami. Uh, And besides, you made an important point earlier today before the show started. I don't think this is good. Oh, no, no, no. I'm I'm agreeing with you. I'm agreeing with you. Um, You made an important point that these people are not illegal immigrants. They're refugees. I don't think so, right? I think if you you cross the border illegally and you are apprehended. And, of course, we had a guest yesterday tell us that border, Border Patrol is sometimes, you know, according to our guest, right? Um, uh, complicit 
in absolutely cr- in a you know cr- providing the the human beings yep. who are being used as props in this stunt, right? So maybe that is the case. But as I understand it, right, if you cross the border illegally and you are caught. You will say, you know, if you you are only allowed to stay in this country and to go somewhere else in this country out of detention, if you are then engaged in the legal process of seeking asylum. That's correct. So it does not seem like any of these people should actually be here illegally. They're engaged in a process that is allowed because I think if you are undocumented and people decide initially that you don't have a claim to asylum, I think then you're just charged with a misdemeanor. And deported. That's right. And I if, think if, unless correct. they are taking no, no, people out of detention, you should be correct. waiting for de- deportation flights and putting them on these flights. And if you cross a second time and get caught, it becomes a felony. Yeah. And it, it, it's up to a five-year uh, imprisonment. If you get caught a third time, it's up to 10 years and it's a felony. So it gets far worse each time you get caught. But these people haven't been caught. I also they're, just dis- they've applied for for or refugee they're in the process stuff. of it, right? You yeah. come over, you get right. caught, you know, you declare whether you're going to try to seek asylum or whatever. There's a decision, an initial decision is made whether mm-hmm. you're going to be mm-hmm. and then you get transferred a to to be sent back or right. yeah, given a given a hearing date. Right. The other so. thing is Florida. I mean, also the other thing with oh man, we, we have other things to talk about before we get going. Most of these migrants were Venezuelans, right? I mean, again, also. Isn't it especially Republicans who were like, oh, yeah, we, you know, fleeing yes. from the, you know, socialist nightmare that exactly. is it's, every aspect of this is just seems ham fisted. And Florida, you know, uh, DeSantis has in the past complained about migrants being sent to detention facilities, holding facilities in Florida. A lot of those are for profit. Of course they are. I mean, it's the same with immigration. It's the same thing over and over and over. In reality, we need immigration because we need people to do these jobs. You know, we, we need people to do all kinds of work in the United States. Uh, yes. You know, we, we need people to maintain population levels. And everyone knows this. And, the, you know, people who are running these detention centers are profiting. From having these people to mm-hmm, detain, mm-hmm. and yet everyone is, uh, you know, or everyone. Well, no, everyone, because Democrats do it too. Everyone acts like this is, you know, it ranges from a problem to, you know, a national nightmare and crisis. And just it, so much of it seems so phony. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so if you if you had enough of it, too bad. We are going to talk more about this later with our guest. Uh, we have some. News about our favorite boy, Hunter Biden. Yeah, Hunter Biden's in trouble again. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was funny to me. Only the New York Post is reporting on this. But Hunter Biden is going to court asking for a judge to lower his child support for a four-year-old daughter whom he has never met, Son. who he had with a stripper uh, after a one-night stand in Arkansas. I mean, you know. Um this little time. girl is absolutely beautiful. Aww. She is. She, there, were, there were pictures of her in the New York Post today. She is just the sweetest looking little thing. And like I said, he's never met her. He's never had any contact with her. Um, he has three other children with his brother's uh, f- widow. And um, uh, he just says he's broke. Uh, the he article has, goes on to say. With his brother's widow? I uh-huh. knew they had a relationship, but I didn't know they had children. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He um, married her and everything. Um, he, um, he's been selling his paintings at $75,000 a piece. There's a gallery in Los Angeles that's been selling them. And he's living in a rented house in Malibu. 
continuing to paint. Crazy as it might sound, there's a market for his paintings. They're this is why I'm surprised he bad. doesn't have enough yeah, uh, money. Uh, yeah, money to pay Where'd child the support. Go? Yeah, I mean, it may have gone up his nose. We don't know, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, he's asking for dramatically reduced child support. Shame on him. I don't know. Did I make a mistake? I don't think that he had children with his uh, brother's widow. They're from an, he er, has an earlier? From a pr- yeah, from a okay. prior marriage. Okay, yes. thanks yeah. for correcting Just wanted me. To, it's not quite that messy. I wanted to also talk for a moment about Goldman Sachs. Oh, yeah? This is kind of the craziest story. Uh, you know, we, we heard earlier in the week that Goldman Sachs isn't doing as well as it has been doing. And so, uh, you know, being super rich, like so many of them are, they decided to end their policy of free coffee for employees. Somehow that's going to save them so much money that it's going to put them back on track. Well, it turns out that there is tumult inside Goldman Sachs, and it seems to be personality-based. Get this. The CEO of Goldman Sachs is a guy named David Solomon. Not only is he the CEO of Goldman Sachs, but he's also a DJ. Oh, I think I and know this. He goes by this. the name DJ D. Saul. Okay. D dash S O L. Extremely for David cool. Solomon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very trendy. Um, other executives at Goldman Sachs are saying, wait a minute, we're we're in a recession. We're not making the money that we used to make. We're letting down our clients. And this guy is more worried about his DJ career, which actually there's something to this. Okay. Than he is about running arguably the most important investment firm on the planet. How old is he? Do we know? Good question. I'll try and look it up. I'll try okay. and look it up. Um, He's 60 years old. 60 years 60 old. 60 year old DJ. Well, apparently okay. at high level staff meetings, he only wants to talk about his DJing. Oh, my God. And people say they have had quite enough. Thank you very much. Oh, my God. Goldman Sachs executive <laughs> meetings are like dating in D.C. in the mid 2000, like the 2010s when everyone was a DJ and they thought it was like a really interesting career that they should be admired for. Oh, my God. <gasps> it says here, according to The New York Times, top executives are less tickled by Solomon's sideline as a DJ now that the economy is looking more grim. I mean, he's going to need it. Yeah, he's going to need to clean up his act. Wow. Yeah. Well, at least they're saving on the coffee. Yeah, so. at least they're saving on the coffee. Yeah. Uh, a spokesperson for Goldman Sachs says this is baseless gossip and they wouldn't have any more <laughs> comment about it. God, what I mean, it's a not mess. Exactly. Oh, my God. The, just the idea of this 60-year-old man coming in and being like, I don't even know how you talk about being a DJ. I really with followed one face, song with the next song in a, in a fluid way that people enjoyed last night. Cool. Unbelievable. I really, like, and, and in the New York Post, my there's sampling a, was awesome. Well, there's a there's a picture of him in a mm-hmm. black T-shirt. He's clearly a 60-year-old guy. He looks mm-hmm. like he's a 60-year-old guy. And he's scratching. I mean, I am probably going to be a six-year-old woman who's, like, doing things that the kids do. So, uh, you know, I would like to be treated with some sympathy. But I'm not a Goldman Sachs executive, right? So I'll deserve some. Exactly. Oh, my God. Well, maybe he can use his DJ takings to support his uh, giant uh, investment firm bank. Something's up. He better do something if he intends to keep his job. 
Yeah. We've got some abortion updates, but I think we will take a break here, get to our next guest, talk about these important international affairs and uh, talk about some of these new abortion bans passing a little later in the show. We'll take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We'll be right back. without the red and blue treatment. I'm Michelle Witte. I'm here with John Kiriakou. We've just spent the last 30 seconds intensely making fun of DJs. We've got it out of our system, (laughs) and we are ready to talk about geopolitics, including uh, the uh, consequential meeting of Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping for the first time since Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine back in February. This is their first face-to-face meeting. It's Xi Jinping's first uh, trip from China since the pandemic started. Um, it is in Central Asia. The relationship between Russia and China is extremely important on a sort of geopolitical level, but their relationship yes. in Central Asia is also very interesting and complicated. Um, and of course, we are going to also talk about, you know, the the significance of the organization whose summit they're attending, the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization, and talk a little bit about some recent moves the uh, American legislature is making with regard to Taiwan. Joining us for all of this is K.J. No. He's a scholar, educator, and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia-Pacific. K.J., thanks for being here. Thank you. Pleasure to be with you. So we have Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin meeting on the sidelines of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in Uzbekistan. As I said, uh, their first face-to-face meeting since February. Xi's first meeting uh, outside of China in a couple of years. And they were obviously going to address the war in Ukraine. They were going to address uh, tensions and provocations over Taiwan. They were going to talk about their economic and political relationships. And so I wonder if you can tell us, you know, what has come out uh, from their meetings and their press conferences on on these topics? I mean, the key thing is the symbolism of their meeting uh, and also the fact that, you know, President Vladimir Putin blasted Washington's provocations around Taiwan and emphasize that Moscow is firmly behind the one China policy. And on the other hand, um, the Chinese have said that they are, you know, firmly in support uh, of, uh, quote unquote, uh, our Russian colleagues to show an example of uh, a, a responsible world power. And so there's a kind of, uh, you know, statement of mutual support, uh, the emphasis on the strengthening of the economic ties between Moscow and Beijing, uh, the fact that they are working towards a sustainable development trajectory together, and that they see the Chinese-Russian cooperation as a model for global and regional stability. I think these are very, very important statements. I wonder, 
if you think it is significant that uh, Putin acknowledged China having questions and concerns on Ukraine, because a lot of the uh, Western reporting on the relationship uh, has been, you know, acknowledging that Beijing, of course, is continuing its economic relationship with with Russia, is continuing its political support uh, for Russia, but also uh, not violating U.S. sanctions, right? They're not selling Russia weapons, at least uh, publicly and in an acknowledged way. I'm not suggesting they are doing otherwise, but China has not uh, really been seriously, um, I think, uh, dinged by the West for, for violating sanctions. And I wonder if you think this is sort of, you know, so- something China might have wanted to put out there to, again, demonstrate that, uh, you know, there there are remaining they can remain political and economic partners with a country while not necessarily being required to condone that country's every move. I think that's a fair assessment of what China is doing. Uh, once again, you know, China has a policy of non-interference in another country's affairs uh, as much as it can or as much as possible. And the other piece to remember is that China has always tried to uphold the idea of sovereignty. And it is also, you know, um, uh, an ally of Ukraine. So, you know, this uh, conflict has created uh, some contradictions for China. And I think it, you know, it has tried to keep its, uh, you know, uh, statements uh, rather uh, amorphous rather than, you know, make a strong statement one way or the other. Have we gotten any indication of uh, where the China-Russia relationship might be going from this meeting? Do you hear anything about, you know, new new joint endeavors, new economic projects, anything like that? Well, what we see is that the econ- economic cooperation is increasing in leaps and bounds. And they have declared that, you know, they are going to show, this is, she has said, that we sh- will show an example of what it means to play a leading role in a rapidly changing world order of sustainable positive development. Essentially, they're saying that, you know, this is what multipolarity looks like, and we are the two leaders of this. Uh, so I think that is, uh, I think that is the direction things are headed. There is going to be an official statement released. I haven't seen it yet, but I think it'll be interesting to parse that for details. But essentially, the key issue is that Russia and China are working together uh, as foundational partners in the construction of a multipolar world. Mm-hmm. And I want to come back to this um, issue of multipolarism and, and sort of moves toward there. But, you know, talking about the close but complicated relationship that China and Russia have had. You know, it is interesting that, you know, when it comes to opposing uh, Western imperial dominance, Russia and China are very much on the same page. But in Central Asia, where they're meeting, uh, they have historically been seen as rivals. Right. Russia has historic relationships with the former members of the Soviet Union. But China also has, you know, very long uh, or very old trade and cultural ties there. Uh, China has been a more dynamic economy than Russia uh, for the last decade or so. And, uh, you know, there's, it's been interesting 
watching how those smaller states uh, manage their relationships with China and Russia. And so I wonder, you know, what you make of how those two countries are interacting in Central Asia right now. Uh, If they are sort of kicking the can down the road, you know, they sort of inevitably remain rivals, but we're going to put that aside for now. Or do you think they are managing to to find a way to work more in partnership uh, rather than as rivals for influence? I think they're figuring it out amongst themselves. And I think this is why the Shanghai Cooperation Organization exists. China historically has been a trading nation all along the Silk Road. Uh, and Russia, you know, has has had, uh, you know, many of the Soviet socialist states uh, in that Central Asia region. And so they're figuring it out. But what's clear is that Russia is joining China in its approach towards trade and uh, multilateralism. And I think it will work out well. I think the other thing to note is that uh, a lot of what we are seeing developing in that area is led by China. China is the key developer, the key trade partner, uh, and the tree, and the key uh, infrastructure, uh, you know, agent of developing infrastructure in the area. I also want to ask about uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization uh, in in general. Right, it, it looks like Iran is now going to join the organization, and I wonder how how you think we should interpret that. I think it uh, just uh, is a signal that there is more consolidation between U.S. enemies. That is to say, there's the two plus three formulation. The two revisionist powers are Russia and China, which are being pushed together. And then we have Iran, North Korea, and, you know, non-state actors. And so now Iran is joining the Shanghai Cooperation uh, Organization. And I think that is essentially, you know, a sign of the times. The U.S. is driving all of its enemies together. I also want to ask, If you think it is significant that Xi Jinping chose to make his first uh, overseas, I mean, (laughs) he could have gone there by land, but didn't, but you know, his first foreign trip in person to Central Asia, right? Uh, He didn't go to uh, Washington. He didn't go to a European capital. He went to a meeting of a uh, an organization that is relatively unknown in the West, in a region that is relatively, uh, you know, uh, the West, most people don't know anything about and, and care about even little uh, less. And it seems to me that there is maybe something just in that decision uh, that makes a statement, right, about uh, the coming multipolar world and the increasing importance of of some of these regions that have been uh, ignored or left behind. Do you think that this is just, you know, sort of circumstance or is there some kind of statement in in this decision to go to Uzbekistan uh, and have this important meeting in Uzbekistan? Well, uh, what happens is that uh, of the countries that are members of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, they essentially rotate their meetings among the various capitals. And so uh, this year, it's in Samarkand in Uzbekistan. You know, once again, uh, this is a very, very important uh, ancient city on the Silk Road. But more than that, I think the key thing to note is that Um, you know, that uh, there has been massive preparations 
for this summit. They built a new airport, eight new hotels, and an international tourism center where they're holding this meeting. And I'm going to ask you to guess which country built all of this infrastructure. Uh, was it China? Yes, it was China. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Boy, yeah, countries that build infrastructure. If you had said uh, they built a huge new military installation or perhaps a new embassy, I might have guessed the United States, but that's about it. Yes. So uh, once again, I think that as the different countries meet, they cannot but notice that everything that is new, gleaming, beautiful, effective, efficient has been built by China. And so there is a kind of uh, strong, you know, uh, seeing is believing type of a a message that is also being uh, sent uh, by meeting there. I also want to talk a little bit about China and Taiwan and some moves being made in the United States. Uh, The Taiwan Policy Act has just cleared the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Uh, It is not clear whether it will actually get a Senate vote. And incidentally, you know, if they decide to vote on the Taiwan Policy Act instead of on um, insulin price caps, you know, what a slap in the face for the American public. Uh, But I wondered if you could talk a little bit uh, about what this act would do and what it means that it uh, it came, you know, was resoundingly passed by this committee. Well, you know, it's called the Taiwan Policy Act of 2022. But I think, uh, you know, the longer title is to support the security of Taiwan and its right of self-determination. Okay, uh, that, that language, that title itself, those are fighting words. I think it would be more accurate to call this bill uh, the Taiwan War Act or the Taiwan Independence uh, Provocation and Weaponization Act. It doesn't even have a fig leaf. It really is a very, very naked, uh, you know, declaration of U.S. uh, aggression towards China. And what it will do is it will trigger in China the 2005 anti-secession law, which gives China the legal permission to reunify uh, Taiwan Island with the mainland uh, by any means uh, that it deems necessary. Specifically, it, it, it includes provisions for military cooperation training, the fast tracking of arms sales. Uh, It uh, wants to include Taiwan in uh, international organization. It wants to create a free trade agreement between Taiwan Island and the United States. Uh, And it also has an entire section, uh, Title VIII, which is simply focused on creating uh, preparations for sanctions against China in the case of war. So it's quite extraordinary, extraordinarily uh, belligerent. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm, you know, it's, it's it's kind of a head turner. What do you make of the fact that, you know, this this bill is making its way through Congress, even though the, the White House, you know, it's a democratically controlled Congress. The White House uh, does not support this bill as it stands, right? It says it supports some provisions of the bill, but it has concerns about others because they do have the potential to to upend uh, the current relationships the U.S. has with China and with Taiwan and, and you know, uh, start a chain reaction toward uh, the catastrophe you mentioned. So if this is just political stunting, you know, 
Should we should we care about this or not, given that at least as it is being reported right now and according to statements being made right now, this bill doesn't really have any chance of being signed into law by President Biden? Yes, it's very interesting. I mean, I think the Biden administration is in this is it goes up is along with this legislation in spirit. But the flesh is weak. It's not quite ready to sign it because it knows the consequences of what signing that would mean. Essentially, it would signal the end of the three communiques and the one China policy. It would give China a green light to engage in kinetic war if it desired to do so. And I think that the United States is simply not ready for that just right yet. But it is part of what the United States wants. All of this is uh, couched in the language of improving the security of Taiwan. Let's be very clear here. Since 1972 until the present day, the existing regimen has kept the peace and allowed for the peaceful development of the people on both sides of the Taiwan Strait. If it ain't broke, there is no need to fix it. This fixing is trying to fix everything in the direction of war. And I think the Biden administration is simply not ready for that just right yet, although it has many hawks among its cabinet that actually want to nudge this over the ledge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we'll have to see where it goes. That was KJ No. KJ is a journalist, scholar, educator focusing on the politics of uh, the Asia Pacific, the geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. Uh, thank you so much, KJ, for joining us. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Always a pleasure. Hey, John, I, I did want to make sure we mention this West Virginia abortion ban yes. that has just passed. Uh, it it's, hasn't been signed into law by the governor of West Virginia, but he has indicated that he is going to sign it. Yes. It would basically ban all abortion with very narrow exceptions for uh, rape and incest and if the pregnant person's life is threatened. Um, but the, I'm going to tell you how narrow some of these exceptions are. Yeah. Uh, adults whose pregnancies are the result of rape or incest have up to eight weeks to terminate their pregnancies, which is, again, uh, barely enough time to be sure that you are pregnant if you are not barely. anticipating it. Yes. Really barely. I mean, it's a it really not adequate time. Um, minors have up to 14 weeks, but you have to file a police report. I mean, I sort of hope that happens anyway, but, you know, it's just ensuring that law enforcement gets brought into this process. Doctors who violate the, the law uh, could have their medical license removed. If anyone but a licensed doctor performs the abortion, they could face criminal sentences of between three and 10 years. Um, the West Virginia has had only one abortion clinic all this time. It's in Charleston. It announced yesterday that it would not be performing abortions and was closed for the day and oh. uh, apparently was going to reopen today. Oh, my God. Now, Ohio uh, had passed a similar ban, a fetal heartbeat ban, right? So a, a six-week yes. abortion ban. Yes. That was just blocked by a judge. Yes. And I think we spoke on this show a couple weeks ago. I think it was Idaho's uh, incredibly draconian ban was also blocked by a judge. So, you know, for the time being, regardless of the Dobbs decision, some states are having to contend with their own constitutional provisions 
you know, that, that guarantee the rights to privacy and self-determination and, and this kind of thing. And so, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see if you know, if these if these state laws continue to get blocked by judges on, you know, on account of state constitutions, um, if we do see a sort of rash of energy to change state constitutions, as we saw in Kansas, uh, as voters will be able to weigh in on in Michigan, maybe if we see that people will get softened up to the idea of changing the big constitution. You Although know, when I say that, I, you know, I don't know how much faith I have in either this yeah, administration or right. any future administration to suddenly get really gung ho on changing the Constitution. Although, it, you know, desperately needs some upgrades. It does. Yeah. Yes, it does. I feel very, very strongly about the abortion issue, which I don't even like to call the abortion issue, the choice mm-hmm. issue. And, you know, you and I have criticized um, the Democratic uh, Party for supporting extreme Republican candidates with the idea that they're easier to beat. Well, on abortion, maybe we should be pushing these these anti-choice people to put their money where their mouths are. And what I mean by that is, you know, we hear, well, we're anti-abortion except in cases of rape, incest, or the mother's life is in danger. Why? Either abortion is murder or it's not. Why is it okay for you to sometimes murder a child Mm -hmm. and other times not murder a child? Mm -hmm. So if you're pro-life, in air quotes, Mm -hmm. then abortion should be utterly banned for everybody at all times. And then let's take it to an election. Yeah. Right? And the Republicans will never win a race, a national race again, if that were the case. Yeah, I mean, it's just it also, all that kind of depends on also uh, people's, uh, it, you know, developing an intolerance for hypocrisy that we obviously don't have, well, you know. Yeah. But I see you do, do see your point, John. Uh, it drives me crazy. Oh, it I, really I get does. it. Yeah, I know. Drives me crazy, too. Uh, why don't we take a quick quick break and come back and talk about some uh, some prison law enforcement and privacy yeah, issues. Lots that we've to been. talk about there. Yeah. Uh, we're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits. We are on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte, a rape victim whose DNA from her sexual assault case was used by San Francisco police to arrest her in an unrelated property crime on Monday, has filed a lawsuit against the city. During a search of a San Francisco Police Department crime lab database, the woman's DNA was tied to a burglary from late 2021. Her DNA had been collected and stored in the system as part of a 2016 domestic violence and sexual assault case, then attorney, District Attorney uh, Chessa Bodine said in February in a revelation that raises serious privacy concerns. I'll say... We're going to talk about that in a minute. Whistleblower Marty Gottesfeld, who's incarcerated in the communications management unit at the Maximum Security Penitentiary in Marion, Illinois, has been complaining that his conversations with his attorneys are being monitored by prison guards. 
Nobody seems to be paying attention to him as he says this. But a new lawsuit in San Mateo, California, alleges that the San Mateo Sheriff's Department is being sued for spying on prisoners and their attorneys while they're having privileged conversations. And a new study conducted by the Innocence Project found that 44% of exonerations are due to prosecutors not turning over exculpatory information. The figure points to a huge number of innocent people who are currently incarcerated. We're joined by Paul Wright. Paul is Executive Director of the Human Rights Defense Center and Managing Editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News Magazines. Welcome back, Paul. Hi, thanks for having me on the show, John. Always great to have you, Paul. I'd like to first talk about this case in San Francisco. A rape victim had her DNA from a rape kit put into a law enforcement database, and then the police cross-checked her DNA against open criminal cases. They found that her DNA matched an open burglary, and they arrested her. This case raises huge privacy concerns, and it victimizes this woman twice. Is it possible, do you think, to protect civil liberties in a case like this in the age of DNA? Well, I think in the age of mass surveillance in an all-encompassing police state, I think it was the executive from Sun Microsystem that said years ago, Oh, right. You have to get used to the idea that they have no privacy. And I think the assumption is that every tidbit, every piece of information about every American, if it's known by a corporation or government agency, the police state has it. And and I think the big thing that we've seen about like these DNA databases is that at the end of the day, um, any anyone that knows anything about databases knows that you know the more the more information the databases have, the more useful they are for whatever the purpose is. And from the DNA perspective, I think that's why we've seen police agencies for the last twenty plus years. They're doing everything they can to get um, database or, or DNA into these databases. That started with um, you know taking DNA samples from people that are arrested but not convicted. Right. First, they start out with the convicted felons. First, they started out with us, and then they just moved on from there. I will not be surprised if, for the next ten or twenty years, um, there's some there's uh, something being done to uh, take the DNA samples from children before they leave the hospital upon birth. Oh, I I could see that happening eventually. Sure. Well, I've seen stuff. When, um, my my kids are older now, but I remember when they were in elementary school uh, around ten or fifteen years ago. Uh, the school sending flyers home that, you know, hey, if you want to have your, um, I was living in Vermont at the time, and the school was asking, you know, if you want your child's DNA registered with the state police in case they get lost or stolen or kidnapped or whatever, um, you know, just sign the form and let us know, and we'll take their DNA. And I think that we're seeing this over and over again, but it even goes beyond that. I think in, in California, also in the Northern District of California, by San Francisco, um, the, uh, the the former policeman, I think it was called the Golden State Killer. They, I don't think he's been convicted yet, but the basis they gave for arresting him for a series of rapes and murders that happened 25 or 30 years ago was that um, not that he had done anything with his DNA, but that relatives of his had uploaded DNA samples yes. commercial. Um, the commercial, um, yeah, like Twenty Three and Me and and yeah, Jed Match, one of those. right, right, exactly. And based on that, they were able to supposedly hone in that it was his DNA that was found at these crime scenes. So I think it's one of those things where you know you're not just seeing um, 
you know, it's not just a matter of what's hap- what you're doing with your DNA. For, as a practical matter, it seems to be like it's what's everyone in your extended family doing with theirs. Yeah, they're, they're calling it genetic genealogy. And it started with the Golden State Killer uh, case. And now it, it, a week doesn't go by that you don't see an article in the paper about how investigators have solved some cold case using this same... Uh, the same methodology. So really, this thing is happening everywhere. This this one case that we're talking about right now, it happened to take place in San Francisco, but but it's not specific to Stan, to San Francisco. It's it's happening all over the place. And I think it's also one of those things too. Is that for a long time, people also thought that the DNA the DNA is the gold standard, and and there's actually one of, and a lot of what we've been reporting as well in recent years in criminal legal news though is how police. Um, you know, police and their uh, expert witnesses have routinely overstated the reliability of, of DNA evidence and the probability of matches. It turns out that, um, you know, 25 or 30 years into this um, DNA identification thing, that the odds when they say, oh, it's, you know, the, uh, the chances of this being wrong are like one in five trillion, it's like it's not. Like, you know, you're looking like, okay, maybe it's more like one in like 15,000. Um, which, you know, in the nature of 330 million people isn't, you know, that out of, um, you know, isn't that out of whack. So, um, you know, so, so I think there's still a lot that, that still needs to be done, I think, around the whole, um, just how the evidence is presented in these cases. But the, the DNA database collection I think, you know, the ultimate goal of, I think, um, the government in this country is to, you know, ultimately have the, have DNA um, samples of every person in the country in their databases so they can use it, you know, as needed. Yeah. Uh, Paul, Marty Gottesfeld and others have long complained that prison guards and prison officials are reading legal mail and spying on conversations that prisoners have with their attorneys. Uh, in my own case, uh, even though legal mail was supposed to be off limits to the guards, they routinely opened it before I received it, and then they would take it out of my uh, my locker and uh, confiscate it, and then apologize and give it back to me later. Uh, this is a violation, clearly, of attorney-client privilege, but it continues to happen. Do you think bringing the issue into the courts, like? this case in San Mateo will have any impact or is this a fact of life that prisoners are going to have to live with that their that their legal rights and their civil rights and liberties are are just going to be violated well this goes back to I think the whole surveillance state thing and I think that you know as we sit here on on this show today we know that the NSA is scooping up and intercepting every phone call and every email made by Americans and um, the difference is I think for for prisoners is that the information is being more readily and immediately used against them. And there's been a number of, of lawsuits against Securus and Global Telling, the prison phone companies that co- routinely contract with prisons and jails where they have turned over, they do turn over in real time, prisoners' phone calls to their attorneys are turning it over to prosecutors and other officials. And they've been sued multiple times on this. And they've been sued and they've actually paid out some damages on the cases, yet the practice seems to continue unabated. And as far as the legal mail goes, I think that that's also been one of those things where, you know, the Supreme Court has long said that uh, for at least the past almost 50 years now, that prisoners have a right to confidential communication with their attorneys. But that seems to be observed more in, you know, it seems to be observed more in the, um, 
you know, um, and the breach than in the norm. And and as you know, yeah, there's plenty of complaints about it seems to happen on a routine basis. And part of the problem is that when it is violated, when those rights are violated, not much seems to happen. Like I've never heard of a guard or a guard supervisor losing their job Mm-mm. improperly reading prisoners' legal mail. And lawsuits are few and far between over the legal mail issues in large part because the Prison Litigation Reform Act basically eliminates damages unless yeah, it's right. so physical injury. And, you know, having your right to confidential communication with your lawyer basically is not going to result in a physical injury. So so prisoners largely don't have a remedy on that. I think you're you're exactly right. Uh, and, you know, the, the crazy thing about the San Mateo case, too, is that the plaintiff in the case only learned that he was being spied on when his new attorney received uh, discovery and found um, uh, correspondence between the private correspondence between his client and his former attorney in the possession of the prosecutor. So the guards in the prison were opening the legal mail, making photocopies of it, and sending it to the prosecutors so that the prosecutors knew what the, what the uh, client's uh, strategy was. It's just stunning. Yeah, and, and I think the big thing is when you talk about an even, an even playing field or a level playing field, I mean, the whole premise of the American court system, civil and criminal, is that it's an adversarial system and you'd like to think that, you know, well, if it's an adversarial system but the opponents are fairly matched, you should get a fair outcome. The reality is that it's anything but uh, an evenly matched system. And when you've got, on the one side, the government with literally all the resources of the state and the government at their disposal, but it's also a thing, too, but then you get the uneven advantage even further where, okay, the government's got all the resources, and by the way, they get to sit in on the defendant and his or her attorney and see what their game plan is or what their strategy is, that's not an advantage that the defendants have where they get to listen in, sit in on the prosecutor's conversations with the police yeah. or with their team to find out what are they planning to do. And, and I think this, these are the things that just kind of um, just kind of cascade on each other to lead to, you know, just the huge disparities in both case outcomes yep. as well as, well, there's a reason we have two and a half million people locked up. Paul, the Innocence Project says that 44% of exonerations are a result of the prosecution failing to turn over exculpatory evidence. 56% are a result of DNA. 40 44% is a huge number to me. Huge. Um, and it results in a whole lot of innocent people being incarcerated. What can be done to bring this number down as close to zero as possible? Well, one of the things that have consequences when prosecutors are found to violate um um, the Brady Rule. The Brady Rule is named after a U.S. Supreme Court from the 60s called Brady versus Maryland, where the Supreme Court held that criminal defendants have a constitutional right to see all the evidence against them, and that includes the potentially exculpatory evidence. Unfortunately, they left it up to the prosecutors to decide what's exculpatory evidence. And what we've seen in case after case after case, uh, both death penalty related and, and not, is that prosecutors often have evidence that points to other suspects that undermines the case um, against the person they're charging with a crime and things like that, and they routinely don't turn it over to the defense because, well, you know, it, it would weaken their case and makes getting a conviction 
um, harder. And this is what I was talking about earlier when I when I said that you know an adversarial system presumes um, not only does it presume that you've got um, you know equally equally balanced or equally um, resourced um, opponents. But also, it also seems to the extent that we have rules, to the extent that we have court rules, of which we have many, we have rules of evidence and things like that. We have the Brady rule. That assumes that everyone is following the rules. And when you've got two teams, and you know, I, I think one way to look at this for the non-lawyers uh, listening to the show is, you know, if you think about it, you have two teams playing basketball or football or you know whatever the game is. Um, you know, all sports have pretty well-defined rules. But if only one team has to follow the rules and the other team doesn't, and they just do whatever they feel like doing in order to win, that's what I think the the the, the best analogy we have to the criminal justice system when it comes to prosecutions is. You've got one team that has limited resources, is pretty much bound to follow a lot of rules, and the other team only follows the rules when they feel like doing so, and basically they're not letting a lot get in the way of winning. And in this case, in this context, winning means securing convictions, and they're not really that convinced. They're not really that stuck on convicting the right person. Yeah, that's true. They're not. Someone. Yeah, just and, convict someone. And I, and, and I think that that's one of the things that you know, one of the things that we've learned from all these exonerations over, um, yeah, you know, and I think that for the people that are okay with this, there's people. Well, you know, you're only convicting criminals, and and you know, so who cares if their rights are respected? But from a public safety perspective, one of the things that we've seen time after time after time when people are being exonerated for crimes they physically did not commit is all too often the person who actually was committing the crimes, they go on to commit more crimes. And this has been the case with especially lots of rape murder cases where, um, you know, police and prosecutors succeed in pinning the murder on um on some hapless defendant who's actually factually innocent and didn't do it. And then eventually decades later, um, that person gets exonerated and it's like, Oh yeah, they didn't do it. But then they find that in the meantime, the person who did do it went on to commit a whole bunch of a whole bunch more, which if they got it right the first time, that wouldn't have happened. So, you know, so I, th- I think that's one of the things that, that people often don't think about is the fact that um, this, you know, this, this lack this lack of following rules and the lack of standards really undermines any concept of public safety, you know, because it lets um, actual criminals get away and continue committing crime. I don't think anyone supports. Paul, there is a cover story in the latest issue of Prison Legal News magazine that is just shocking to me. It starts off by saying that the killers of Ahmad Arbery had one request of the sentencing judge. Uh, that he send them to federal prison. They didn't want to go to a Georgia state prison. Why? Because in just the last two years, 57 prisoners have been murdered in the Georgia state prison system. Uh, Their request was denied and they were sent to state prison. But tell us how a prison system can be run with 57 murders having taken place in just 24 months. And administrators act like this is just normal. And this is what's, what's even more bizarre is Georgia's not alone. There's been a massive number of murders in Alabama. There's been a massive number of murders um, going on in Mississippi as well as Florida. You know, pretty much all the states right now in the southeastern United States of, you know, basically the, the you know, for lack of a better term, the, 
the states of the deep south, you yeah. know, Florida, Georgia, Alabama, Louisiana, and Mississippi. Their prison systems are pretty much in states of free fall to collapse. You've got massive murder levels um, happening. And basically, um, prison officials' response is, hey, we've got everything under control. There's nothing to see here. Move along. And I, I think that one of the problems is that um, for the ordinary citizenry, if you believe Hollywood or TV shows like Oz or things like right. that, uh, people think that violence and murders in prison are commonplace. And it's normal. It's commonplace. Right. And the reality is they are. Um, you know, I mean, one of the, I'm the guy who's been following statistics related to criminal justice for over three decades. Yeah. And, and the interesting thing is, like, you know, I look at, like, prison murder statistics. If you look at the number of murders going back, um, you know, as recently, you know, let's just say around 2010, 2011, 10 years ago, the entire number of homicides in the entire prison system, all 50 states in the federal prison system, is, you know, you'd be talking about 130, 120, 130 a year, um, which, and I would say that's 130 too many. I agree. And I apologize, too, because this is such an important conversation and we're out of time. I have to wrap it up. That was the voice of Paul Wright. We're going to have Paul back, of course. This is an important issue we have to get to the bottom of. Paul's executive director of the Human Rights Defense Center and managing editor of Prison Legal News and Criminal Legal News magazines. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. Stay tuned for our next hour. I'm here with John Kiriakou, and we are going to try to get through three pretty weighty topics in this next segment. We are going to talk about this deal, tentative deal struck between rail freight companies and their unions. We are going to talk more about immigration politics and how immigration and migrants are being handled. And we are going to get into a very interesting look from Politico and German magazine Welt at how the pandemic response was privatized, mostly by organizations associated with Bill Gates. Uh, and now, I guess, two, two years on, it's, it's okay to look at that and think about the ramifications of it. So getting into these uh, pretty significant and, I think, important conversations, uh, we're joined by Dan Kavalik. He's a labor attorney, he's a human rights activist, and he's an author. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Let's start with this tentative deal struck between the rail industry and unions. Uh, as I understand, it still has to be ratified by union members. It does come in the nick of time. Uh, you know, a strike by some unions was more than just a possibility. Uh, the machinist union I saw reported last night had voted to authorize a strike to begin in two weeks. Uh, and so I, I want you to talk to us about what we know of the terms of the deal and also, you know, what this extended showdown says about the state of labor organization and and labor militancy in the United States right now. Well, it's very exciting. I think this is a sign of the 
reemergence of the strength of the labor movement. They obviously threatened to strike at a, at a, a very opportune time, right before, before the midterm elections coming up. Uh, a strike could have really tanked the economy, and the Democrats very well could have been blamed for that. And so um, the Labor Department helped broker a deal, which is going to get um, immediate wage increases for the rail workers, uh, double-digit wage increases, I think an immediate 14% increase and a $1,000 bonus. Uh, Also, uh, it guarantees they can seek medical assistance for injuries without reprisal. I guess that was a big problem, that they were, workers were afraid to get medical attention when they were hurt on the job because uh, they would get in trouble uh, at work. Um, so this is a big deal. And um, I think unions should be very proud of, of what uh, what this particular union was able to accomplish. What do you make of the performance of the Biden administration here? Because uh, President Biden was able to announce this deal himself. Labor Secretary Marty Walsh is credited with brokering these, uh, you know, the last minute talks that ran apparently for 20 hours straight that resulted in this deal. Uh, it was the Biden administration that had convened this emergency council, uh, I think, weeks back to try to achieve something. And it feels, you know, you have an agreement, right, which which saves ugly scenes on both sides. It, it feels like a situation that perhaps was handled pretty adeptly by Biden and is probably going to get him some political points. I agree with you. I think Biden deserves a lot of credit for this. Um, I think he didn't flinch in the sense that he did not capitulate to the rail industry, which another president very well could have by saying, hey, if you strike, I'm just going to use emergency powers and keep the rails work running. He didn't do that. Um, And that would have obviously given a lot of leverage to the rail companies. And he did help through his Labor Department broker a deal. So I give Biden uh, a lot of credit here. And I agree. I think he will and deserves some political um, support for this. Yeah, I'm also curious whether there is a contrast here to some of the statements we saw from the democratically controlled Congress. Um, You know, I saw Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders um, stepped in to squash a Republican effort to uh, force the unions to to comply with the demands of the industry. But you also had uh, a Democrat, Steny Hoyer, the House Majority Leader, saying Congress would step in if no agreement could be reached, which, you know, sounds like forcing workers to go back to work under conditions that they don't find satisfactory. Uh, So I wonder, you know, what what congressional Democrats seemed prepared to do, because it didn't sound like it was uh, supportive of unions, right? Which is more of a sort of personal victory for the White House. I agree with you. I think the uh, how, you know, the congressional Democrats were more worried about their own skins. Again, all, more worried that if there were a strike that hurt the economy, that they might be out of jobs in November. So uh, they were really acting out of self-interest and were willing to sacrifice the unions for this. And I think the unions should really take a hard look at this, you know, because uh, the position of the unions in general is kind of, there's a couple exceptions, but in general is vote blue no matter who. And uh, I think they now see that that is not necessarily a great strategy. I also wonder how much you think we should make of uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg's absence from this drama. I did not see his name mentioned in any of the reports I read. I, of course, might have missed it. 
Uh, and, you know, this this is fundamentally a, a labor dispute, but I didn't see his name come up in in uh, discussions of what the White House was preparing uh, in terms of, you know, contingency plans, which would be, you know, the, the purview of the transportation secretary. And so I wonder I wonder what that says to you. I don't know. It, it, it seems like one, po- politically speaking, if they wanted to elevate Buttigieg, uh, and put him back in the spotlight, this would have been an opportunity to. And so they either didn't want to do that or thought if we draw attention to him, it's not going to make him look good. I, I wonder what you think of the fact that the transportation secretary did not appear to be part of this at all. Yeah, well, as you know, I mean, this the, the, I don't see what goes more to the core of transportation than this dispute. <laughs> not not only was there a threat to the the freight train industry, Amtrak was already shutting down lines. In preparation for the strike, because the Amtrak rails, the passenger trains actually have to cede to the freight companies because they own the rails. So obviously this was a transportation department issue. And as you say, we don't whatever Pete Buttigieg was doing, he wasn't doing publicly. And I think probably because he felt that anything he did could compromise his political position. And he has. you know, he has designs on bigger political office, including the presidency. So I think he didn't want to take any positions. That's my guess. I think it's because he's in a, a presidential internship program that has nothing to do with having any transport expertise or, or yes. gravitas and, to bring. Or, and, yeah, but exactly. that at the same time, that that reluctance to to pick a side. Yeah. You know, it, 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 that waffling, it just makes me think, man, if you can't figure out what the right side on that issue is, you have no business being president. And people don't like wafflers. No. You know what I mean? Like Kamala no. Harris waffled a bunch, got 1% of the vote. Joe That's Biden, right. you know, like him or not, he didn't change his position no. over the course of the campaign. That's right. He changed him after he got in the White House. <laughs> But, you know, he didn't start off saying, no, we're banning fracking, we're defunding the police or whatever. Correct. You know, he's cons- he's consistent. And, yeah, I do think uh, I, I do think, it, you know, has the potential to reveal Buttigieg is really a sort of hollow political creature. Well, I mean, the whole Buttigieg rise is baffling to me. I mean, the guy was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. I mean, mm-hmm. a, a university posing as a town. I mean, right. Right. Um, <laughs> I, you know, uh, I don't see where this guy's come from or why people are interested in him to begin with. And as you say, this kind of proves that he's way out of his depth. Yes. Um, Let's talk about immigration a little bit and the escalation of uh, this year's new practice of sending migrants from the southern border to northern cities. This was started by the governors of Arizona and Texas They've been sending migrants by bus to places like New York, Washington and Chicago to say, basically, you know, you want to be sanctuary cities, then you take in the people that you are encouraging to cross the border. And I will say up to this point, though, of course, it's a pretty distasteful practice. uh, It's not kidnapping. Right. Uh, These migrants are, are going voluntarily. I also haven't seen. And maybe, again, I've missed it. I haven't seen these governors. Uh, well, I don't know. I was going to say does, uh, DeSantis calling them specifically illegal migrants is something that I don't know that I've seen Texas and Arizona do, although maybe I have just missed it. Um, but, you know, Texas and Arizona are border states. Right. And I do think that maybe 
there is some reason for sympathy for small border communities who say our resources are stretched. Um, we we need more help. Why don't these rich northern cities get involved? I could be completely wrong. I'm sort of trying to, you know, I, I think this is a stunt. But, you know, to the extent that we are locked in a system where uh, the poor among us, the vulnerable among us are distributed a finite number of resources, I have sympathy for people who genuinely feel that they are fighting for these very, very small pots. But Florida stepping in to, I guess, fly a plane full of migrants who appeared pretty confused about what's going on from San Antonio to Massachusetts, uh, you know, to to highlight illegal immigration. When again, I, I think if people are in this country, if they haven't been put into procedures to deport them, I think they must be seeking asylum, which is legal. Uh, I don't know. Everything about DeSantis getting in here feels a little bit like even more like stunting and overreach. I don't know. What do you what do you think about this practice? Well, I agree with you. First of all, I do agree with the premise that, you know, if first of all, I'm very pro-immigrant. And I but and I do think, though, if you bring in immigrants, they should be, uh, you know, that the whole country needs to equally share the burden. Yes. Of, of bringing in the immigrants, including. I agree. Cities that claim to be sanctuary cities should be happy to take in immigrants. You know, I see the mayor of Washington, D.C., I think, has declared a state of emergency because yes, she she's getting too, that's too, right. too many immigrants. And I think that's silliness on her part. On the other hand, look, this should this is a federal problem. It's not up to each a governor of any state to say we're going to send immigrants to other states. Yeah, it's up to the federal government to say, OK, we got one hundred thousand immigrants. We're going to send 10,000 here, 10,000 here, you know, and work with the cities and states that are receiving them to make sure they're received properly, that they get the services they needed. Again, so I, I don't think it's right for the states to take this into their own hands. On the other hand, again, if the federal government's abdicating its role in, in handling this situation, I understand that there are states that feel disproportionately affected. And um, again, the country has to fairly share uh, the cost and the burden of all this. Yeah, I mean, this is the this is the thing about this, um, this this whole practice is I feel like there probably is. I agree. I think I'm surprised. I, I consistently surprised at the lack of federal support. Uh, offered to people who the federal government decides can be in this country and await asylum hearings. You know, I was very surprised to learn yesterday that, you know, basically they'll say, okay, you can stay. Here's your, you know, we're going to give you a hearing date. You can't work and we're also not giving you any money. Here you go to a state who's who now has the responsibility of supporting you, the, the responsibility, you know, legally and also I think morally, right? Again, I think, I think it is very clear that the United States wa wants and needs immigration. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of this, it, it's just such a it's a useful political tool. But I agree. I think there is there is a, a kernel of uh, truth and reality here that the financial and social burden is borne disproportionately in some places and others. Um, but it's just hard to talk about because we keep having to come back to the, you know, using the language of uh, of burden. You know, when it, when we're talking right. about people who, for the most part, we really uh, need to support our economy. Yeah. And again, I, I, I don't think I agree with you uh, that 
they're, you know, they're not a burden in, 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 in a certain sense, but in another way they are. I mean, I, you have to deal with the fact that there's a cost to this, right? Mm-hmm. And then again, it, however you define it, burden, cost, whatever, that should be borne fairly and equally in this country. And again, it's up to the federal government to do that and to make sure that happens, not up to individual states. And um, it shows us a, a breakdown in leadership on the, on the you know, part of the federal government. Yeah, I mean, it's surprising to me that the Biden administration has not sort of done anything more publicly to help the cities that are now receiving these migrants, right? It, I've I said this on the show before, but it certainly provides them an opportunity if they wanted to, to demonstrate how, uh, you know, how, what cooperation could look like, especially when you have a democratic administration and democratically led cities who are uh, on the receiving end of of this political stunt. And yet they really have just kind of let it happen. And I guess they, I don't know what they, I don't know what their political plan is. Um, yeah. Because, you know, as strange, long as, yeah. well, I was going to say, as long as you have, yeah, D.C. trying to call out the National Guard, uh, stories in the, the New York Times about how New York's uh, social services are uh, reaching capacity, Lori Lightfoot, uh, in Chicago complaining, you know, they, these are all democratic led cities. The, the, it seems like the white house is just sort of like letting them experience this in a negative way and let, allowing it to be portrayed negatively. And it doesn't have to be that way. No. And again, the strangest part being that Washington DC happens to be the nation's capital, you know, and I get, and it's so weird how DC is treated. They kind of pretend it's not the capital of the United States, right? I mean, if there's any city that should be getting help from the federal government for this. It's Washington, D.C., yeah. where all the federal officials work and live. It's it's an incredible uh, thing. But, yeah, I agree with you. Um, again, it shows a lack of leadership. It shows a lack of political will. And honestly, for me, I must say some of the complaints of these Democratic mayors seems very hypocritical to me. And I guess that's what the, the Southern governors wanted to do, is show them as hypocrites. And I must say, they sound like hypocrites. Um, uh, they claim they, they like immigrants and, but then when immigrants come to town, they, they panic and that's ridiculous. Yeah. Also shows just how, um, stretched all of our social services are everywhere. You know what I mean? Like it shouldn't a a couple hundred more people in a, in a city, the size of, of, uh, New York. Well, I'm exaggerating. It's been thousands at this point, but it's also been since April. Right. And it's August now, you know, I don't think that, you know, we should be all of our social safety nets as meager as they are should be operating at like 95 percent capacity at all times so that an emergency, you know, turns the lives of many people into chaos. Right. I think it shows that we need some more funding in a, a variety of areas. Well, we have no social safety net. I mean, uh, that's yeah. all been gutted. And no, I agree with you. This highlights how terrible our social system is, of course, because all the money's going to war. It's all going to Ukraine. You know, I mean, uh, a fraction of what we've sent to Ukraine could solve this problem. Yeah. Um, And Mm -hmm. it shows a lack of of priority or good priority anyway on the part of the federal government. Yeah. I also want to talk. I think this report in a Politico magazine this weekend, um, I think it's Politico magazine. It's Politico anyway. Um, It's very, very long. Uh, it goes into a great deal of detail, uh, and it discusses how four private groups used their clout to control the global COVID response with little oversight. 
the story goes on to say critics are raising questions about the equity and effectiveness of the group's response to the pandemic and the limitations of outsourcing the pandemic response to unelected, privately funded groups. I, I think it is interesting on a lot of levels that, w- that we are talking about this. Uh, and I wanted to start with the content. And again, it's a really long report. I'm going to try to sort of encapsulate it a little bit. But basically, uh, Politico and German newspaper Welt, uh, over a period of months and interviews with um, dozens, possibly hundreds of people, documented what they describe as an inexorable shift in power from overwhelmed governments to a group of non-governmental organizations who were armed with expertise and bolstered by contracts at the highest levels of Western nations and empowered by well-grooved relationships with drug makers. These organizations took on roles often played by governments, but without the accountability of governments. Some of the things these groups did were identify potential vaccine makers, target investments in the development of COVID tests, treatments, and shots, They use their clout with the WHO, the World Health Organization, to create a worldwide distribution plan for the dissemination of COVID tools, which, of course, would ultimately fail to live up to its original promises uh, to adequately provide needy nations with these tools. And it is interesting that the four groups that they focus on, first of all, are really three groups. It's the Gates Foundation and two development groups founded by the Gates Foundation, and then this group called the British Welcome Trust. Uh, And the report just sort of goes into what they did, what role they took on that was probably properly played by the government. Uh, They found that because of their immense wealth, they had immense clout with the WHO uh, because they had made huge donations to the WHO. And what do you know? In the end, the response that these private groups founded by some of the world's wealthiest individuals, somehow accidentally left poor countries out in the cold. Uh, They missed all of their targets last year for developing or delivering testing and treatment. And uh, they put Gates himself in the position to uh, personally intervene to prevent Uh, the lifting of intellectual property protections that public health experts argued were necessary to speed the delivery of vaccines. I'm trying to encapsulate a lot here, but uh, I wonder, you know, just looking at what they're trying to get into here, what does it show about what happens when private entities take over government responsibilities? Well, they act in the interest of private individuals, and and that always is uh, the elite, the rich. And again, we know what the result was, and no one disputes this, that the rich got almost $5 trillion richer from the pandemic, and the poor got $5 trillion poorer. I mean, that is the upshot of all this. By the way, the other group that's not mentioned is BlackRock, which was one of the biggest, most important uh, groups that helped uh, frame and design the response to the pandemic in terms of the PP. With the PP, whatever they are, payments and all that, the CARES Act, all that. It was BlackRock that helped lobby for and end up writing that legislation. That's a financial investment group, right? And again, it all wor- magically worked to the engorgement of the rich. This was nothing but bowling for dollars. Yeah. And, you know, I guess who knew that all these memes and conspiracy theories about Bill Gates during the pandemic were true? I mean, honestly, <laughs> um, you know, it's a total abdication of democratic leadership, as you say, for, for a 
accountable public officials to put this in the hands of unaccountable private entities, it's not going to work to the benefit of the public. And it hasn't. The, yeah. the U.S. has had the worst numbers in the world in terms of number of cases and deaths. It's suffered this incredible redistribution of wealth upwards. Um, what good has come of it, of, of the decisions made in this? Uh, and, you know, not much. It's interesting to me also, you know, the premise here of the, the why this happened is because these go- governments were caught flat-footed and unprepared, uh, whereas these enormous, well-funded organizations were, were ready to step into the breach. Well, why do you think, you know, why are our governments so impoverished and unprepared for these emergencies? Could it possibly be because some individuals have so much money in addition to, you know, our absolutely insane allocation of spending, you know, to send you know, enormous sums to the Pentagon and uh, pinch pennies when it comes to public health. It's like, yeah, you know, this is a snake eating itself. Um, You know, you have, yeah, these these people who make money, you know, Bill Gates' fortune is based on intellectual property rights, you know? Uh, These people who are in the business of making profit, identifying their profit-making buddies to play key roles in this pandemic response, just all of it is incredibly ugly. And I do think it is notable that it, that this report was ever assigned and ever published, right? Because if you criticize Bill Gates or suggest that the Gates Foundation is is an anti-democratic force and is very obviously failing in its mission to end poverty, you know, you get called some kind of a tinfoil hat freak, right? Right. And, and That's exactly what's happened. And even during the pandemic, it was really uh, it was verboten to acknowledge the profit motives driving vaccine makers or to point down the line and to possible negative outcomes of expanding surveillance and control in this environment. It was all seen as like not playing ball or as equivalent to uh you know, denying that COVID was real or uh, denying that vaccines, you know what I mean? It was all, you were not, there was, you had to be into the team spirit and there was a good team and a bad team and they would not broach any criticism. And so I guess it seems like now we are far along enough away from the pandemic to to look critically at it. But there are quite a lot of people who are pointing at this going, I, you know, we, we've been saying this. No, again, I do go back to this thing where people who were, as you say, I mean, throughout the pandemic were pointing their fingers at Bill Gates and were treated as conspiracy theorists and now appear to be right. Um, But you're right. Basically, these things tend to come out when the dust is settled and no one really cares anymore. And, you know, the pandemic continues. And yet for the government, it appears to be over. It's not discussed Mm -hmm. anymore. And there won't be any more stimulus payments. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's sad. It's sad that I never felt there was a proper public debate about how these lockdowns should have gone. You had mom and pop stores closed while Walmart was considered essential, an essential business that could stay open. And as you say, sadly, it was the liberals that mouthed people who complained about that state of affairs. Yeah. And it wasn't fair. And it wasn't right. And again, the rich got richer, the poor got poorer. And um, at best, no one cares. Or like you said, they vilified people who complained. And that was wrong. And I think our democracy uh, has suffered greatly uh, because of all this. It was a terrible sort of political and social environment in the United States for this to happen, you know, following 
following Trump's election, following Russiagate. It was just a, a, a high point of of mistrust and sort of team team politics. And, you know, we're getting all these reports now about like the education impacts of lockdown and kids being behind on on some educational metrics. And frankly, you know, like I don't think that uh, any negative consequences mean that a decision was wrong. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think it is the end of the world if if kids are uh, learned a little less in fourth grade and have to catch up. You know what I mean? I, I think that there is a cohort of people who will point to anything negative about the lockdown to say the lockdown shouldn't have happened, whereas I think you had to weigh weigh consequences. And, you know, if we are dealing with a, a unpredictable violence that uh, a virus that could kill a lot of people, then I think, you, you, you know, you can trade uh, trade off some uh, speed in elementary education. Right. But uh, the, the way that it was, as you say, the way that it was handled just abrupt no dissent. Uh, there was not a lot of discussion to be had, and it was really hard for people who wanted to not argue that nothing should be done, but to argue that things should be done more fairly to to get a word in. Yeah, and again, I do want to point out in terms of the education that, yeah, I agree, getting a little behind is not, the, uh, you know, the, the end of the world. Yet the, there were other implications. There were kids who had to stay home with abusive parents who weren't getting their meals in school. There's yeah. the thousands of kids that just disappeared, right? Just stopped coming to the Zoom calls if they ever came to the Zoom call because they didn't have a computer or Wi-Fi uh, and may never go back to school. So, I mean, there, there was a lost group of people. Of course, there's mostly poor people. There are people that aren't on social media fighting the cultural wars about the, you know, whether <laughs> you should mask up or not. So no one cares. But, you know, there are poor kids out there who suffered and will continue to suffer the effects of this. And, yeah, no one seemed to give a damn about them. Yeah. Or, you know, isolation among seniors. Yeah, there were a lot of a lot of ways that it could have been it could have been managed very differently. And I I do think it is interesting. And, you know, I mean, better than nothing uh, that, you know, mainstream organizations like Politico are at least taking a look at it. Politico's got a new owner. Yes. A German fellow, I think. Yeah, just in the last uh, month or so. Yeah, been a lot of concern in the media world about what that means. But if this is a sign of it, I think this is interesting. Anyway, Dan Kavalik, thanks so much for joining us for these three different weighty topics. You're a labor attorney, you're a human rights activist, you're an author. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners where they can go to get your latest work? Well, I'm on Twitter at Daniel M. Kavalik, and I have a new book on Nicaragua coming out by Clarity Press, which you can go to their website to find out about. Very cool. Dan, thank you, as always, for joining us. We are going to take thank a quick, you. We're going to take a quick break here and come back to a story that we mentioned earlier in the week. A uh, very interesting story about how uh, certain huge private education systems are failing their students and what could be done about it. You're listening to Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here in the studio with Michelle Witte. 
A New York Times report this week says that students in New York City's Hasidic Jewish yeshiva schools are regularly beaten, abused, and denied a basic education despite the fact that the schools are partially publicly funded. The schools focused almost exclusively on religious education, and they turn out students who do not know even the basics about math, science, English, or history. Indeed, 99% of yeshiva students fail the state's standardized tests. And when they graduate, almost none of the students are able to communicate appropriately in written English. While there is some congressional interest in the problem, city and state officials don't seem to care, and Governor Hochul has refused to even respond to reporters' questions about the issue. Is this an isolated incident, or is it more widespread? What are things like in, let's say, the Amish community, or in the fundamentalist Mormon community? We're joined by longtime educator and activist Bill Ayers. Bill is a former professor of education at the University of Chicago, I'm sorry, the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he held the titles of Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar, and where he specialized in teaching social justice, urban educational reform, narrative and interpretive research, and children in trouble with the law. Exactly the specializations that we need for this conversation. Welcome back, Bill. Good to hear your voice, John. Oh, same here. It's always so great to have you. I'm always so pleased when I see that uh, we have a conversation set up. Bill, can you tell us a little bit about the situation in Hasidic education and how it got to the point where it is now? We've all seen or heard of documentaries on Netflix and Amazon exposing this system. Now the New York Times has published an expose. This has been going on for a long time. Why hasn't somebody done something about it? Well, I, I can only speculate on that, John, but I think that the the answer lies in the fact that as a voting bloc, the Hasidic community has been effective, and they've been effective as other powerful voting blocs have been in terms of influencing policy in a very retrograde direction. So I think that what we're looking at is partly goes way back to the blurring of public and private or the blurring of religion and uh, and state. These are supposed to be separate realms. They have become increasingly, and with the current Supreme Court, tolerating,ly um, mixed up. So here we are with public money funding Hasidic schools and Mormon schools, as you say, and fundamentalist Christian schools and Catholic schools, where the public interest is not being served. And by that I mean, even though I think we would all agree that parents have a huge basic fundamental responsibility for the education and upbringing of their children, the state has an interest, the public has an interest, and the interest is not allowing kids to be exploited sexually in terms of work or in terms of uh, of religious indoctrination. We have an interest in that, and we don't want to see kids beaten with clubs and so on, and that's what's been going on in these Hasidic schools. So that's a problem. Bill, Hasidic schools are private, but they still receive a billion dollars a year in government money, and that's just in New York City. Um, Why? And if the system (laughs) receives public monies, why is there no oversight? Well, there must be an oversight, and I think that's what the New York Times is. That story, that that expose is going to bring this to the public in a way that something is going to be done finally. But again, politicians cringe in the face of voting blocks that mm-hmm. have power. But the, the money comes, it's public money, yes, but it comes from, um, it comes in the form of social services. So it's not 
they're not funding, literally funding the school. They're funding the social services that surround the school. And there's some rationale for that, but the problem is these schools don't do anything around education. They actually just do uh, religious, you know, drilling and killing on uh, orthodoxy, and that's all they do. So the public has no real interest in that, and it's a scandal that we are spending that much money to support this kind of miseducation. Yeah. The Times report says that many young Hasidic men, and when I say young men, I mean 17 and 18-year-olds, they want to leave the community, uh, but when they graduate, they can't read, they can't write, uh, they have no vocational training, they can only recite the Torah and the Talmud. It's like a form of control where you technically are educating them by sending them to school. But like we see in many Islamic schools, especially in Saudi Arabia, where they teach them only the Quran, uh, the same thing is happening in Manhattan and Brooklyn and Queens. So do you think there's any hope for students like this, or are they stuck in this vicious cycle that's just going to keep them in a community that uh, many of them don't even want to be a part of? Well, I mean, the problem is we have to face the fact that we want to live in a broad, democratic, secular society. You're allowed, when we say freedom of religion, we mean you can worship anything you want and you can believe anything you want, but that doesn't mean that the public has to support that with its own taxes and so on. So so we have a situation, as I said, the Supreme Court is blurring these lines increasingly. So we have in New England a situation where uh, there was a case just before the Supreme Court last, last month where uh, private schools wanted public money and the Supreme Court said, fine, religious freedom allows you to take public money. That is an absolute uh, violation of what's been our tradition, and it's a it's a dangerous and slippery slope. Indeed. Are there similar problems in other um, communities across the country? I mentioned in the intro, for example, the Amish community or these fundamentalist uh, LDS uh, communities in the West, or is this unique to the Hasidic community? No, I don't think it's unique to the Hasidic community. I think that, that fundamentalist religious communities want to educate their kids to keep them part of the community and that this is part of that socialization. It's, 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 and again, it's one thing to say you can have your religious school any way you want to, but the public has an interest in children not being abused, not being exploited, and being able to participate fully in an open and free society. If you give kids, uh, you know, nothing but recitation in the Torah or recitation in the Bible or the Quran, you're in deep trouble when it comes to trying to participate in a in a multicultural, um, uh, complex secular society, which is what we should have and what we do have, and yet it's being chipped away at. You know, I'm wondering, too, why uh, in religious communities vocational education is not stressed. If, if you're not training children to go on to college to study math and science or, or even history and English, why not at least give them a skill that they can use to put food on the table? Well, you and I agree about that. In fact, I would extend it a little bit, and I would say, why aren't public schools giving kids skills? That's right. You're going to college. I don't care if you're going to college. Shouldn't you also know how to repair a, a drain pipe? Shouldn't you also know how to build a wall? I mean, I think you should. And, and therefore, I think that a good school, uh, a comprehensive school, a high school, a middle school, would have kids engaged 
engaged in apprenticeships. We have kids engaged in um, learning how to do arts and crafts, even if they're going to go on to Yale and become a lawyer. That's not that, that, that doesn't preclude the fact that in a decent education, in a fully human, humane education, you would not separate the heart, the hand, and the brain so dramatically as we do in our educational system. I'll tell you the truth. My dad had a PhD in education, and one of the things that he was more proud of than anything else in his life was his membership in the International Brotherhood of Meat Cutters uh, that he got when he was 18 years old. He was the fourth generation meat cutter in his family. I even have a picture of my great-great-grandfather's butcher shop in in Greece from the 1880s. And, uh, you know, until the day he died, he was proud that even though he had this PhD in education, by God, he he could butcher a a side of beef. It's nice to be... Useful, you know, like useful in in an immediate sense, not yeah. a theoretical one. I actually think I think it's good to be able to know how to cook. It's good to be able to know how to how to operate a kitchen. It's good to be able to know how to operate a machine shop. These are decent things that everyone, you know, everyone does need to know everything. But it rounds out your education if you don't make such a dramatic separation between the brain and the hand. Everyone should learn a skill. And, and high school should be a place where those things are just options and given. You don't have to just learn English and math and pass a standardized test. You also ought to be able to participate in the community. And great schools and schools for the privileged actually do this. In New York City and other places, uh, kids do apprenticeships, kids, kids do volunteer work. And they learn how to be part of a democratic society. I think that is true for all schools, not just religious schools. I think it's true for, I would argue that we should all be doing that. That's right. I have a cousin who, um, uh, who, whose father was abusive. Uh, his parents uh, divorced when he was at a, at a very young age. He was four when his parents split up. Uh, he, uh, it was not possible for him to go to college because his family just didn't have the funds for it. And he went to a trade school, our local trade school, the Newcastle school of trades. And he learned um, how to become a mechanic. And of my 27 first cousins on my mom's side, he is by far the most successful and the wealthiest of all of us because he learned a skill. I don't know the first thing I know how to open the hood of the car and that's about the extent of my understanding of auto mechanics. But he's brilliant. Oh, I can fill my my radiator. <laughs> I can put I can put coolant in the damn thing. <laughs> like I thought for a minute about changing my own oil and then I uh, decided not to. <laughs> but what it leads to is it leads to a sense of alienation from the complexities of our world. And wouldn't it be wonderful if every kid had some ability to work with their hands, some ability to participate in other kinds of work, even yes. if you're a lawyer. I mean, what, what's the problem with being able to work with wood or work with plastic or work with, uh, right. you know, paint? I mean, yeah. those are things that one should know. And, and again, everyone doesn't have to know everything. But your cousin who knows how to fix cars has a kind of wisdom that every kid should have, whether they, whether it's in auto mechanics or whether it's in shop or whether it's wherever it is. The point is we're less alienated when we recognize the work of the world is as common as mud and we all can learn how to do it. That's right. 
Bill, uh, students in Seattle this morning went back to school after a a week-long teacher strike. We've also seen strikes this year in other big districts like Columbus, Ohio, for example, and Philadelphia, as well as in countless small districts. This seems to be, you know, something that that we see every year. Uh, What are the issues? Are they any different now than they have been in previous years? Are they still generally pay, benefits, and, and classroom sizes? Well, I think for the last 10 years, John, and starting with the historic Chicago teacher strike 10 years ago this month, um, we've seen strikes that are not strikes simply for money and benefits. Mm-hmm. They, are strikes for, they are strikes in favor of education because education itself is under attack. So in Illinois, just to give you one example, and then I'll tell you about Seattle, but in Illinois, um, by law, teachers could only strike over benefits and wow. and every rally that we had ten years ago and this more recent strike, every rally had giant banners that said arts are essential to a full education. Keep the libraries open. Every school deserves a social worker and so on. Even those those even though those weren't issues on the negotiating table, they were issues that people were standing up for. Because what we're seeing again and again and it's true in Seattle is that teachers are fighting for the common good, the common good of education for all. It's not simply that they represent some very small special interest. They represent the idea that an education should be free and open to everyone simply by dint of being born. So what they're saying is education is not just a product and you can't just kind of throw it out there. Education is a human right. Every kid deserves a full and forward-looking education with a decent curriculum and a well-paid teacher. So that's part of it. Amen to that. We'll leave it on that note. That was the voice of longtime educator and activist Bill Ayers. Bill's a former professor of education at the University of Illinois at Chicago, where he held the titles of Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar, and where he specialized in teaching social justice, urban education reform, narrative and interpretive research, and children in trouble with the law. Go to Amazon.com and search for Bill Ayers and pick one of his fantastic books. You're listening to Political Misfits right here on Radio Sputnik. We're going to come back to you with some final thoughts. Politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. I'm John Kiriakou here with Michelle Witte. I read the craziest story today in the New York Times. I can't get through the show without talking about it. Please. It's about a guy named Eric Murda. He lives in uh, Sarasota. My friends Jeannie and Yasser live in Sarasota. Beautiful place. And um, he uh, he digs irrigation ditches for a living, Right. So he was out on a service call and he had a break in his day of a couple of hours. So he decides to explore this area called the Manatee Fish Camp near one of his job sites. And uh, he ended up getting lost. Okay. So he's wandering around. It's really hot. Yeah. He can't figure out how to get back to his car. And then decides he's confused in the heat 
he decides that the only way to get back to his car is to swim across the lake. No. Yeah. Don't well, don't swim across a freshwater lake in Florida if you don't know anything about it. And, Come on. And he gets people. into the freshwater lake. He feels like his clothes are beginning to pull him down. So he takes them all off. Okay. He's naked. This guy is having and he's trouble. He, yeah. He's he's confused. He's having trouble. Now he's nude. Yeah. He's swimming across the lake. He turns and looks, and two feet away from him is a nine foot long alligator. Hmm? So he tries to outswim the alligator, which, listen, people, public service announcement, you can't do. Yeah. Right? And the alligator bites his arm. So he's wrestling with this alligator. It pulls him under three times. Finally, it bends his arm back and it snaps it off at the elbow. Oh, my God. And then it swims away with his arm and hand and eats it. The poor guy then gets out of the lake. Still lost. Yeah. Now he's naked. Yeah. He's in shock. He ends up wandering around for three days. No. Mm-hmm. How did he not bleed to death? He, did he jam his arm into the sand? He looked for something to make a tourniquet with, okay. but he was naked. Okay. So he didn't have a tourniquet. He says that that he just kept telling himself that he had to keep going. He had to hug the the, the shore because... He remembered that his car was somewhere near the shore, right? Turns out when he laid down to rest, he laid on a, on a nest of fire ants. So his back was covered with fire ants. They may have actually helped to staunch the bleeding. This is something that happened with a, a, a girl who was abducted from her That's bedroom. Right. That's abducted right. from her bedroom, I think, had her throat cut. And stopped the collapsed bleeding. Collapsed on a, a yeah. yeah. I'm pretty sure I remember that, and I'm pretty sure it's true and not like an urban myth. No, no, no. Yeah. It was in the papers a couple yeah. of months ago. This poor guy, after three days, he finds a fence. And a guy happened to be walking along the fence, and he asked him to help him. So he called 911. So he never made a tourniquet or anything for no, his arm? No. What? So they lifelight him to a hospital in a helicopter, and they had to cut off the rest of his arm because the stump was so badly infected by then after three days, you know, like this. And, uh, you know, they interview the guy, and they've got a picture of him with no arm in the How New York Times. How old is this dude? He looks like he's about 40. Oh, actually, it says he's 43. Huh. Yeah. And uh, no drugs. No, no. Not that, of course, you know, it doesn't he matter. In, but he in just, between ditch in between? digging, di- ditch digging yeah. jobs for his irrigation Man. business. Man, I've never heard of anything so awful. I mean, he's got a pretty great story for the rest of his life. I guess, and he, you know, could he, have been worse. But he lost his right arm, which is going to be a challenge. He's right-handed. Yeah. Well, you know, again, again, honestly. Uh, you've got to feel pretty lucky in that situation. That, and, and, you have to and feel he did, lucky. He did get into the water voluntarily. He did, voluntarily. And he says, so, I challenged the swamp, and the swamp challenged me back. Yeah, and he won. Amazing. That's incredible. It's quite a long story in, in today's uh, New York Times. Check it out. I have my Just own Ill, ill-advised fantasies about, you know, having to uh, make your way out of a sort of hostile, tur- you know, plane crashes and you survive and you have right. to walk to whatever. Right. But I never lose my limbs well, you, when do I you think remember, about it. Do you remember <laughs> in May there was another story? We actually talked about it on News of the Weird uh, where there's this uh, public park where they've got um, uh, they had they do Frisbee tournaments. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of the Frisbees 
are out of people's reach and they go into the swamp. Oh. So this homeless guy's like, hey, I can retrieve these Frisbees oh, and no. turn them in. And yeah. they pay like a dollar a piece if yeah. you turn in the Frisbees. So he gets in the swamp to no, get the Frisbees. That's awful. That's so and an sad. alligator ate him. Um, a story that caught my eye yesterday, a story about Patagonia. Do you see that? The, the founder of Patagonia yeah. who has uh, held, you know, controlled the company since he founded it uh, 50 years ago about uh, Yvonne Schwinard, I'm going to guess is how you say his last name. He has uh, given the company away. Yeah. He has not sold it. Crazy. He hasn't taken it public. He's transferred the ownership to a trust that I is going it. to use 100% of the profits to combat climate change and protect undeveloped land around the globe. Just awesome. I think it's cool. I mean, again, I do not think the solution to the world's ills are billionaires making the right choices. And the uh, New York Times lead story here includes the nauseating phrase, uh, reluctant billionaire. Like, <sighs> if you didn't want to be a billionaire, you you no, could, no, like, yeah, do it. Yeah, I mean, I guess nuts. if you, could, you retain control of a company that's worth a billion dollars, even if you don't have a cent, to your name personally, you're, you're a billionaire. Right. Um, but I think, you know, in this context, it's a cool move. It's a cool move to make. I don't think, you know, I don't think he should be in the position to make that move because I think there should be, you know, de democratically elected entities that That's are right. uh, controlling those things. But I think it's pretty cool. And apparently, I mean, there's, I don't know, I'd have to go through, I'd have to maybe be a lawyer to be really certain of this, but it, there's not a big tax break in here. The way he did it, the way he made that donation was not going to get, you know, he didn't like get a billion dollars right. back because of this transfer he made, which right. is what you see with a lot of these big donations. Absolutely. They just uh, give you Buffett an equal tax and break. Jeff Bezos yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. Bill so, Gates. you know, I, I think Patagonia, you know, if you've got to, if you've got to buy things new, which I try not to do, uh, Patagonia is one of the companies that I will buy new products from once in a while because of what they sell and also yeah. because they, you know, seem to seem to be trying to not use slave labor and, right. you know, uh, operate sustainably, et cetera, et cetera. I like they REI do a lot of repair very work. much too. Yeah. Yeah. REI right. is, I mean, you, you, you can buy, well, if you join the IR, the REI club or whatever it is, co-op, co-op. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You, you own shares in it and, I, I just like the way they're set up. It's yeah. not about the profits. Yeah. So an interesting, interesting. And, uh, you know, even though I have I have reservations, interesting and laudable, laudable move. Uh, I guess the money went to two different collectives. Um, yeah. You know, it was cool. He was 83. Yeah. When he did it. He's not so. going to take it with him. The other odd story is about the um, the trial of the Parkland shooter, Nicholas Cruz whose defense was expected to call dozens of witnesses and and last for a really long time and has uh, pretty quickly wrapped things up and focused their entire defense of Cruz on his mother's drinking when prenatal drinking. And basically they're saying he can't, you know, he, he shouldn't be held fully responsible for these actions because he's been handicapped his entire life by these decisions that his his mother made. Right. They're hey. arguing that he had uh, fetal alcohol syndrome and that it affected him for the, the course of his life. Mm -hmm. Which may well be true, right? I mean, of course, it's not a defense 
for shooting, uh, I think it was 16 people, something like that, at the Parkland school. But, uh, you know, might be enough to... I mean, I guess, again, I haven't looked at what is going on in this trial, but it might, I, I assume that they are simply trying to avoid the death penalty. That's exactly what for it is. For Cruz, yeah. They're, they've never denied that that he did it. Yeah. I mean, clearly yeah. he did do it. Yeah. Uh, but you're right. The, the strategy is to uh, try to get him out from under the death penalty. It's Florida, and so it's going to be tough. Yeah. And they, they do execute people in Florida. It's not like California where you get the death penalty and then you die of old age 40 years later. Yeah. 17 people killed 17 people. Uh, it seems like there the other attorneys and maybe the judge in this case. Let me see. Uh, the, uh, the judge was pretty upset at the decision of the defense really? saying it was an unprofessional because I guess the defense didn't give them any warning and suddenly wrapped up despite having say, has said, we're going to talk to all these people. We're going to call all these witnesses. And so I guess the judge said, this is the most uncalled for unprofessional way to try a case. I think um, that statement is inappropriate. Let's see. Because it's, it's up to the defendant to present whatever defense the, he wants. Uh, yeah. It was a shouting match accused of uh, prof- there were 11 days of testimony overall. There were supposed to be 80 witnesses. They called only about 25. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what, going down and i don't seek the you know I, I don't wish to see the death penalty for nicholas cruz he should no. go to jail for the rest of his life i don't i you know i don't think we you know, I, I i i disapprove of the death penalty in all I cases do too. i don't make an exception for this one yeah i do yes. too uh donald trump has made some statements this morning. Yeah, called tell into, me. I, I only heard what, what you've uh, you he said during the talk to conservative radio show host hugh hewitt um, about, Ugh. you know, everything you would expect, basically. Uh, it, what is getting headlines is the fact that he said he doesn't expect to be indicted for anything and he wouldn't let an indictment um, stop him from running. Well, it might not be up to him. <laughs> yes. yes. <laughs> Don't try to tell Donald Trump that. Uh, it's also funny when they asked about like, oh, they're trying to get you. Trump is really stuck on Russia. And Hugh Hewitt had to say, well, actually, I think this is about January 6th. Yeah. And he was like, oh, right. Yeah. Says Ugh. he hasn't been asked to appear before a grand jury. Says he hasn't gotten any target letter from investigators. Um, you know, he yeah. likely won't. Yeah. I never got a target letter. And uh, says says it didn't say, yes, I am running, but did say an indictment wouldn't stop me. We'll see. Good luck with that. We'll leave it there. We got a lot to cover on our last day of the week tomorrow. But for now, I got to say thanks to all of our guests. Thanks to our producers and engineers here. And on behalf of John Kiriakou and me, Michelle Witte, thanks to all of you for listening. We will see you tomorrow. 